This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. When a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it themselves, themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sparky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump. They'd wait until everybody was locked up, and he would open his door, run down to cell one, and get a bugler can full of Sparky and take it back to his cells. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. Welcome back, folks, to another episode of Stool Pigeon Saturday. This is our special tour across Idaho season here, and uh, I am actually at the Stricker home site at the dining table right now with the president of the Friends of Stricker Foundation out in Hanson, Idaho. And I just want to say right now, if you haven't come by here, you have to. This is such an incredible piece of Idaho history, of Oregon Trail history, and we have one of the best speakers to talk about it. So welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Jennifer, can you tell us a little about yourself and what what brought you here? Well, I do have a family connection to the Strickers, and so that was always something I heard when I was younger. Um, but I've also always been a big history fan. And when I went to college, I majored in English and history. And as a senior paper, I had to write some uh, a paper on some original history. Okay. And I hadn't found a whole lot of stuff about this site. So I actually ended up coming out here, and this is way back in the 90s, (laughs) coming out here and doing a paper on the Stricker site and what kind of happened with, it had originally started off as as a trading post and was really busy, and then it kind of died down, but it didn't die down like some of the ghost towns that we're used to, mining and logging and things like that. So, So that kind of started it. And then I moved out of state. And when I came back, somebody that was already on the board said, well, you need to get involved. And so I got involved and then <laughs> got even more involved. <laughs> as, as that happens. Right, so, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. All right. And so how long have you been president of the, the, the Friends Foundation here? I think I've been president about 12 years. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And you've kind of helped envision this huge renovation that happened in 2021, the big ribbon cutting that led up to that. Yeah. Uh, What was that whole process like? Well, it started in, I think, getting serious about the fall of 2018 into the spring of 2019. And I remember being out here when we had representatives from the Department of Public Works for the state. Mm -hmm. We had the Historic Preservation Office. We had the Historical Society. We had like state engineers and a couple of um, architects and I mean, just a wide range of people who specialize in dealing with properties, I guess. And we came out and toured the whole site and we all got to make a kind of a list of where we thought our priorities needed to be for what needed to be fixed or repaired or, you know, made better out of the site, basically. And then that kind of process started. The Historical Society was working on a budget. Um, we were able to take advantage of that, plus uh, some additional funds that came available at some point. And in 2020, <laughs> um, that was when everything was supposed to start. And it actually did. I mean, I hate to say it, but the pandemic was kind of a blessing for our site in a way. Because, I don't want to say blessing, that's a that's a horrible word to use. <laughs> it, was, it was like a, a quiet period for yeah. work to get done, though. We were able to like. take advantage yeah. of being closed for the pandemic because the state required us to basically close. So we didn't have any volunteers out here doing tours and we needed to move things out of the house and out of the store anyway, so that they could paint and replaster and repair the roofs and get that done. So we didn't have to do that. And then also do tours at the same time or Mm -hmm. do school tours or do events and things like that. So it actually made it easier for us. And so they took the whole of 2020 basically to to come out here and, and work. So we had the plaster done and the painting 
and then all set for a big grand opening in June. And yeah, that was kind of a process. It was, it was actually kind of interesting too, because we met on zoom. There was a number of us that were all involved the committee um, with renovations. And so we would have zoom meetings and that made it a lot easier. None of us had to like travel. So we could just uh, talk about what was going on at the site, the new signs, the new pavilion. Yeah. So it was a crazy time, but uh, like I said, at least we didn't have to do it on top of doing all of our regular stuff too. So, yeah. What was the signage like before that? Was there any? or We had virtually no signs okay. out here. So if you stumbled on our site, we had a, a big sign at the kind of the entrance that might tell you a little bit about the site. And we had a few little things posted, our posters kind of at the Interpretive Center. And then we had at the Interpretive Center, there were some panels that talked about our site in context of the local history, but there wasn't a whole lot of our stuff in that. There wasn't like why this house is here and who owned it and what is this building out here on the property that's been so well preserved. So for the most part, we would create these little brochures we called them self-guided tours, and we left them in a couple of mailboxes around the site so people could read those and tour the site. But if you, if we were out for any reason, and you, you know, or you just came out and didn't realize that they were there, you might not know what anything was out here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the the signage is really amazing. The yeah. photos, the stories that they tell, like, wow, it's it's really cool. Yeah. I, I'm very impressed by that. Well, we lucked out because when we started doing this project, there was a group out of Boise, the TAG group, but they really took our input too because you know our volunteers and some of our board members and the people down here really know the history well. And so we were able to say, yeah, this is, this is what this is, or this is a story. Yeah, so it was really great. We had a lot of local input, which was especially important for us, but I also think that, yeah, it made the signs a little bit better too for people coming. Yeah. Just meeting with with the group today and seeing the passion that you all have for the site, for the history, for the preservation, having people come in, it's it's really, really amazing to to see that. Like (laughs) at the old pen, that's the same thing. That's all I want is like everybody to have the same passion about Mm -hmm. the preservation and telling the story of the site. And it's really cool to see your group have that heart in there. Thank you. Can you take us back to the 1860s or okay. pre-1860s? Like yeah. what, what is this and why is it so important? What's the history of the site? So the, the big thing you need to know about southern Idaho, especially south central Idaho, is there's not a lot of water. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that's true in the west, but if you came through this area in the eight, you know, 1840s on the Oregon Trail, you left Fort Hall. And once you got to Milner, about the Milner area, that's the last accessible water that you have Mm -hmm. because now we've got canyons. We've got Snake River Canyon. We've got the Rock Creek Canyon. There's nothing. And so then you have to wait till you get, you know, further on down near Hagerman, basically, till you get some more water. So this was kind of a throughway for a lot of the European Americans that were coming out on the Oregon Trail. The Native Americans that were here, the Shoshone and the Bannock, used our site a lot because the Rock Creek is at a really accessible point on our site. Rock Creek is the last creek that the salmon could get up because they couldn't jump the Shoshone Falls. Mm -hmm. And so it was full of salmon. And so the Bannock and the Shoshone would camp along our area here during their annual migrations. But they didn't necessarily form real permanent places out here because, again, it's sagebrush and lava rock and dirt jackrabbits maybe a couple coyotes nothing else and so um we were sort of a pass-through place and that's one of the reasons why south central idaho is one of the last settled places in idaho there's no water and so in 1840s when the oregon trail started coming through our site became an important stop because of that water so in years previous the mountain men that were coming through would use the site learning from the bannock to shoshone where it was and then you have people kind of coming through and as things kind of develop then you get a little bit more traffic again because of the creek and then in the 1860s gold is discovered in boise Mm And by that time, now you're starting to see the railroads starting to come through. And they wanted a way to get goods and people from northern Utah to Boise. And so a guy by the name of Ben Holiday sent his men out to find a good route from northern Utah to Boise. Mm-hmm. And they realized that our place was another really great stopping point because of the water. Yeah. So now we have the Kelton Road and now we have the Oregon Trail coming through. So we've got this big hub of transportation down here. And that lasted for a good, you know, 50 years until 
the canal system came in and mm-hmm. Twin Falls was created. And so we have a lot of, of that early history here in the late 1860s into the 1900s because of the hub that our site was. It's a little oasis in the middle of the desert. So the structures that we have over here, this Rock Creek area, this Mm -hmm. Rock Creek Station, can you describe some of those buildings and what they were used for? Well, in 1864, the original Rock Creek Station was built. It was built using lava rock because that's a resource we have a lot of out here. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And it was... um, for the Kelton Road freight, we became our site became a what we call a home station. So swing stations were places where you just stop, get people water, you know, let the horses rest a second, then you'd get back out. A home station was a place where you'd probably stop for the night. You could get a meal, you could make repairs to your wagon, you could change out your horses, so that you had a place where there was a pause basically. And our site was a home station. So they built the Rock Creek station. They had to hold 40 head of horses. They had to have a little blacksmith shop. They had to have lodging for people who could stay the night, including freighters, but also travelers. And so that was like the first building that was out here. And that would have been the oldest building in the Magic Valley if it still existed. It doesn't at some point because of the lack of resources in our area. (laughs) Those rocks were removed when the stage station was no longer functioning and put elsewhere. But in 1865, a couple of guys, John Corder and James Bascom, realized that there was an economic opportunity. If you could put a store on the site, you'd get the traffic that was coming through on the Kelton Road and on the Oregon Trail. We were the only place between Fort Hall and Fort Boise then at that time where this basically existed. And so they created a store. And that's the building that is still on the west part of our property. That is the oldest building in the Magic Valley, um, built in 1865. Wow. Do you know the dimensions of it? I don't off the top of my head. Um, It's not huge. It's not. And at some point there was a saloon built off the back and it has changed shape over the years in so many different ways because it was used as the store until the early 1900s when the original Stricker house on our site burned down. The Stricker family actually lived in the store for a while while they were building the new house. And then as Herman Stricker moved into ranching um, and not running the store anymore, some of the hired hands and some of the other people that were in the area also lived there. So uh, yeah, there was a family reunion out here a few years ago and there was a guy said, yeah, I grew up in that house in the 1940s (laughs) in the cabin. It was kind of fun. And he goes, and there was a closed in porch and another room and another, yeah. So that building has seen some crazy additions over the years, but it's back in what we think of as its original condition in some ways. Yeah. Were there shootouts or big things that occurred in at the station? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> a lot of liquor going through that store. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. Um, at some point Herman had some apple trees and he made his own hard cider oh. and then they would get whiskey and of course beer. And um, if you look at his ledgers, which we still have a ton of the original ledgers, yeah, you can see that beer and whiskey was, was one of the top sellers here at the Stricker store. Yeah, there are a couple of kind of crazy ones. We have a Pioneer Cemetery just about a quarter mile west of the property. And we know at least two people that are buried there died violent deaths. Oh, and one wow. of them was was stabbed after a fight, after they were playing cards in the saloon. And um, so he's, he's there in that cemetery. And then there's another guy, and this is maybe a... A story that's been embellished over the years, but his name was Bill Dowdle. And he showed up on the property at some point. And I don't know if he was already a horse rustler or if there was something that happened on the site that that he got in trouble for, basically. And the little townspeople around here, they kind of arrested him and sent for the marshal in Boise. And he was basically sent to prison for a couple of years. And before he left, he sort of threatened everybody here and said, I'll be back and you guys will pay for this. And he went to Boise in the prison for a couple of years. And when he came back, he was looking for two guys that had kind of told on him, basically tattled on him. And one was the blacksmith. But at that time when he returned, the blacksmith was ill. So he was at home recuperating or something. And the other guy that was here had left the area. And so... I guess Bill Dowdle was sort of disappointed that he couldn't just take his revenge. So he started drinking a little bit and um, then he started kind of shooting off his gun. And we know that he shot and injured one person, I believe. And then he shot at 
the clerk that was running the store and the clerk went back into the store and got his gun and came out and shot Bill Donald. And he's in the cemetery. So we believe so. Okay. Yeah. There's some, there's some very interesting stories about the people who ended up in the cemetery and, and if, mm-hmm. yeah, we have, somebody else had said, no, I think some of his family ended up taking his body and burying it somewhere else. But I think maybe he's buried out of the cemetery. I can't say for certain, but huh. yeah. And the interesting thing is, is that, so Charlie Walgamot, who is Lucy Stricker's brother was actually that clerk. And he tells that story in a book that he wrote um, in some articles that he wrote a long time ago, but he doesn't actually name the clerk. And I think it was probably because there was no statute of limitations on murder. And so maybe he thought he'd get in trouble, but he was actually the clerk. But, um, so, I mean, and everything you take with Charlie, you have to kind of take with a grain of salt because when he was reliving these experiences, he was, it was the 1920s and these had happened, you know, 50, 60 years before. But there's another tale in a book. There was a British gentleman Vigilante Days and Ways, I yeah. think, is his Nathaniel Langford, uh-huh. I think is his name. And yeah, there's I have a, that, yeah. yeah. We brought that up on the podcast okay. a couple times. There's yeah. a story in his book when he arrives at Rock Creek uh-huh. and he talks about the funeral of Bell Daddle. And the funeral's kind of funny because Charlie doesn't go into too much of it. He just says that, you know, I guess they didn't resent Bill Daddle for any reason and they were gonna sing him and carry him off and put him in his grave. But Nathaniel states a whole different story. And he says, when he got here, there was some craziness going on that there were all these guys and they were carrying this coffin around and they were drunk enough that they couldn't remember where they needed to go with the coffin. So he's talking about them. And I mean, this is a British guy who's like, is, are all Americans like this? Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. crazy wild west. Yeah. And he talks about how at one point, one of the guys says, wait, He's got my jacket on. So they stop and put the the coffin down and he gets his jacket off of Bill Dowdle and puts it back on or whatever. And they're drinking and they're singing Days of 49 or something like that. So, I mean, it's just kind of a crazy thing. But apparently they eventually got him buried. So Wow. <laughs> so we have two, basically two stories that dovetail like, about the same incident. So maybe not necessarily completely accurate, but it, right. it's... You know, you've got two people telling Truth about the same thing. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Old Otto Bill was a hard old case. He never would repent. He never was known to miss a meal. He never paid a cent. Old Otto Bill, like all the rest, he did to death resign. So this is a meeting place. Like people are restocking, they're reshoeing, whatever right. they need to do, fixing their wagons. And then Carry Act irrigation starts to appear here. Right. So more people start to come. So more storehouses come. And then the Strickers build what we're sitting in now in 1900, yes. right? So what, where was that, that transition from like Rock Creek Station to like the Strick, Stricker home site? Like... Well, it actually happens before the Carry Act. It's before that. Yes. Which is kind of an interesting thing. So the heyday of our site as sort of its own little town Mm -hmm. and as a trading station and as the hub is about the late 1870s into, or mid 1870s into the early 1880s. But what happens in 1883 is that, well, the Transcontinental Railroad has already been set and now there's branches coming off. And there's one that goes up through Pocatello to head to Boise. And they need to decide, are they going on the north side of the Snake River Canyon or the south side of the Snake River Canyon? We're on the south side, of course. But the town of Shoshone at that time was getting a little bit bigger. They had a lot more. um, I mean, gold was in the the Wood River Valley. Mm -hmm. And so I think they decided, well, we're going to take this railroad through Shoshone. So the railroad got built on the north side of the canyon which meant that if you were still coming out on the Oregon Trail in the 1880s, and there were some, um, if you had money or you know, if you didn't have to worry about that, you took the railroad. People who were going now to Boise, for whatever reason, were taking the railroad. Mm-hmm. And some of the freighters might still be coming through here, but it basically died down. Right, okay. So in 1884, oh. it became really quiet around here. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, and so Herman was still running his store, mm-hmm. um, 
and there were still, you know, there were a lot more people in our area who'd settled, especially ranchers. So we had ranching in Nevada that came all the way up into here. We had a couple of ranches here in the, our local area, and they would buy their goods through Herman. Okay. And so he was still running a store for a number of years. But about the late 1800s, like 1890s, and into 1900, Herman is now also ranching. And so he's making a lot more money that way than mm-hmm. the store, and yeah. the store is not as viable. So the store gets kind of closed down in the ni- early 1900s. I think he was still bartering with some of the people that were around, and he was still ordering certain things. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, he was still selling some whiskey and some beer, I think. <laughs> um, but, but basically, the store kind of went into, um, basically, the store became no more. Um, they were still running the post office out of the area, but then now that they're ranching and people who were kind of living here were realizing there were other places to be and they were resettling. And then, yeah, the site turned from basically a little town now into private property in a way. It's amazing those decisions yeah. for the railways, right. like how much that drastically changed everything. Yeah. Wow. The wet and dry cellars. Oh yeah. Those are so fascinating. Like Every time I come here, like, I have to go in and, and explore those. <laughs> what would those have held? We, we call them the wet and the dry cellars right. because uh, the wet cellar probably carried the whiskey and the beer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it yeah. was closest to the back of the saloon. Mm-hmm. The wet cellar is smaller than the dry cellar, and it's a little bit more compact. It's, it's not as tall as the dry cellar either. And they took advantage of kind of a natural depression in that area to build the cellars. And I don't know if they were thinking ahead of time of they're having two or not mm-hmm. um but the way that they did it, i think was actually brilliant so they the wet cellar they would go up to the milner area in the spring and before there was actually milner lake which i think is mostly man-made there were some ponds over there and they would dig out big chunks of ice and wrap it in straw and burlap and pack that wet cellar tight so oh, that yeah. they would kind of have a refrigerated area yeah. for anything that was perishable and then these oral histories will tell us that they could actually keep things cool into July and August, which is uh-huh. amazing out here because in July and August, we get 100 degree temperatures. Oh, yeah. But the wet cellar still maintains. I mean, if you go in there, even on a really hot day, you can mm-hmm. feel the difference in the temperature. And oh, then if you yeah. imagine ice in there. In. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. And then the dry cellar, which is, I don't know, about what three or four times bigger and mm-hmm. twice as tall, is dug down into the foundation a little bit more. And Herman could order barrels of goods that he wanted to sell so cornmeal and flour and sugar and you know anything else that he wanted to be able to store instead of just you know when he's buying some of those goods to sell he's he's buying in bulk Mm -hmm. so that he doesn't have to you know pay out as much or or pay for the shipping because i can't imagine what that price was at those times so the dry cellar was mainly used for anything that that uh, could be stored for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And then they put a door on there as well. And then they also used it as a temporary jail because <laughs> there was no law enforcement in our area at the time. <laughs> and the nearest marshal was in Boise. Although I think there was a, a sheriff or at least some sort of law enforcement in either Oakley or Albion at the time. But still, if you had somebody doing something bad, you needed to keep them away from everybody else. <laughs> you could put them in, that, in the dry cellar and give them maybe a um, you know, some, uh, some a beer or something and say, okay, we're going to lock you down in here for a while. But um, And then they also used it as kind of, I don't want to say protection, but if the storms were coming through, you know, we have big wind storms in southern Idaho, and if it was winter and things were coming through, and you had people that were still maybe in tents or you know, like I said, a big, a big rainstorm was coming through, you could have people down in there and kind of protect them from the elements, basically. It's amazing to think of all those things happening in there. Yeah. Like, and the fact that they built them so well that they're still basically, I mean, the only thing we've really had to replace has been the roofs, the sod roofs, mm-hmm. um, because those get eroded every year. But the, the walls are still intact, and it's amazing to think the materials that they would have had to build them in those days. So yeah. they didn't have, like, backhoes and, you know, <sighs> jackhammers and things like that. Right. So, yeah. And getting through all that lava rock, yes. too. Oh, my gosh, backbreaking but, I mean, amazing work. It's still around. Yeah, yeah. Do you know when those were installed? Or? We don't have yeah, any yeah. specific okay. dates, but we believe it was probably sometime um, just right after the store was built. So hopefully, or maybe in the late 1860s. Yeah, you're really stepping back in time when you go and yeah. see those. And what, what kind of artifacts do you have in the store? Well, the store, 
it's it's kind of interesting because the store has been so many different things. I mean, we know it's the store and it's been preserved that way. And Lucy Stricker, when she donated the property, wanted to make sure that it was preserved in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it served as many different things, we don't have a ton of original stuff, but we do have some. And one of them is the ledgers, although the ledgers aren't stored out in the store. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we have some of Herman's original ledgers. He also was running a store at Springtown, which is actually in the Snake River Canyon, just a little bit west of, of Hanson in the canyon, and would have his goods delivered by a pulley system down into the huh. into the canyon. Wow. Yeah, but he made, for a while maintained ledgers at both places, basically. Wow. So for the Springtown store and then this uh, uh, the one up here on the site. So we still have the ledgers, but those are not at the store. Yeah. Um, some copies, and we've got some other posters <laughs> and stuff. We do have, which is... One of the fun things that's out there the kids, the fourth graders really love is we have Herman's original safe. So this big giant safe that he ordered from San Francisco, probably to hold the gold dust that was coming out of the canyon. Um, He probably didn't do a ton of cash uh, transactions. It was mostly people who found gold who then were trading it for things in the store. And then the assay office in Boise was where he could later you know, send the gold. So we have a Herman Stricker and it has his name written across the top. So we know it's his. And that thing is weighs a ton, um, but is really kind of a fun. Yeah. Um, unfortunately it's kind of rusted. Uh, the, the mechanism is rusted. So it's always open, which is a good thing. Cause we don't have the combination or the key. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> And then we have some other little artifacts in there, but a lot of that has been things that we have either been donated or things that have been given to us from other Pioneer families or when we decided to kind of redo the store to make it look like it might have in its heyday, um, we started kind of, you know, looking at what we already had and also, you know, kind of sometimes purchasing things from like estate sales and antique stores. And yeah, don't look too closely at the canned goods because we did like take new cans and wrap old printed label you know labels uh-huh. that we found online or <laughs> yeah 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 i mean anybody Gotta make it look like, that's so. it yeah. yeah yeah try to try to give that authentic yeah. feel it's right. it's really tough yeah <laughs> the stricker house that we're in can mm-hmm. you talk about its history and sure. development and you know what kind of things happen in here when herman stricker and his original partner bots it was his last name uh they actually purchased the store on the site when the original guys decided they were moving on and so then they were running both the Springtown store and the one up here. And then later, Botsit moved on to, and Herman must have bought him out. But when they originally brought the property up here, the store, as part of the sale, they also purchased a log cabin and then I think another little outbuilding. And so the log cabin, we believe to be the one that was actually here on this property where the house is now. And when Herman and Lucy were married in 1882, they lived in that cabin and they raised... They had seven children, although one died in infancy, but they raised their children in that cabin. So if you can imagine for 18 years, and the witness that tells us how big the cabin is, but if you look at the original pictures that we have, it's not that big. Yeah. So I can't imagine, right, six kids and, you know, two adults in in a tiny little house. But in 1900, and the story goes, uh, this is a family story, that one of the Stricker daughters had seen her mother burning trash outside and you know kind of doing that and she thought she would try her hand at that and so she started a fire in the house yeah and this is i think in march of 1900 and lucy we we think and this is another you know it's one of those uh, apocryphal stories we're not Mm. sure if it's completely (laughs) accurate or not but we believe um from stories from the family is that lucy was basically at home with the girls uh the men were out you know on the ranch doing other work at the time so she got her girls out she got her wedding furniture out she got some photos out and that was about it now her wedding furniture was on casters because <laughs> in those days things were on casters so it might have been a little easier but basically kind of by the time the guys saw the fire and rushed to help lucy had kind of gotten what she could out of the house so they moved out to the store <laughs> And they built the house that we're sitting in now. And what I've been told with this is that they got most of the wood for the house. They built it stockade style. So if you remember the old like forts, if you, if you think of those old Western movies where the forts are like the boards are stacked right next to each other, that's, that's the stockade style. So the house was built that way. Yeah, with planks from, I believe it was kind of the, the Oaklear Albion area. And then they bought the trim and all the pretty pieces that went with it from the Sears catalog. Oh, okay, yeah. So, yeah, Classic. so it looks kind of... In fact, there's another property near Boise called the Chicostalasa House. And 
if you look at both of those houses, I think you can tell that they probably both went to the Sears catalog and got the same, same colors, kind of the same curly cues and the corbels and things like that. Uh It's kind of fun to look at, but, um, yeah, so they built this house pretty quickly because they were in it in October of 1900. So in just a little over six months, they had the house built. Man. Yeah, and the original house has, um, I mean, it's just it's kind of Victorian style. Mm-hmm. Definitely kind of pretty in some ways. Yeah, and then had, uh, of course, no heating or plumbing or electricity. But they had chimneys so they could have the heat, of course. And it was built on a much bigger scale because... Even though they probably just didn't necessarily, they weren't they weren't really really wealthy. They didn't have a ton of money, but they kind of realized that they were still a hub for the community that had been growing around here, the, the people that were around here. And since they were still serving as sometimes the post office and still having people come in and having parties and things like that, I, I think they decided to kind of build on that bigger scale. Yeah, they're so important to this area. That's yeah. so cool. Like, yeah, I'm so glad it's preserved yeah. and that yeah. story lives on. Yeah. And then in 1916, they did add on because in 1916, they also uh, were helping to build a new house for their son, Bon, and his wife, Clara. And in 1900, there's no such thing as Twin Falls County. There's no Twin Falls. There's nothing else out here. 1904 is when we start to see the canal system come through. So in 1900, they just, they built the house. They had it up. But in 1916, by that time, now you had Twin was, you know, a town of already almost 10,000 people. And now you had, you know, kind of people coming through. You had electricity coming through and they decided that they would make an addition, put electricity in the house and then plumb the house too. So they Mm -hmm. built on an addition where they could have a kitchen and a bathroom and a laundry room. (laughs) And so now we have a house that has, I don't think I've ever counted how many rooms, but there's probably uh, not quite but about 16 17 rooms i think yeah. so a lot bigger than you kind of maybe think of that would be out here at that time yeah but yeah for sure it's kind of a, a mansion yeah on these beautiful grounds it's right. kind of out in yeah. the middle of farm fields yeah. and you know desert probably at yeah that point we were talking before we started recording a little bit about music right. and how lucy uh-huh. would kind of unite people and have concerts and right. travel around and there's an organ that's a mm-hmm. kind of a replica of, of hers can you talk a little bit more about that and yeah and actually let me take you back just a little bit because okay. i'll tell you yeah, a little yeah. bit about herman and a little bit about lucy so you yes. kind of know who they are so herman actually um immigrated from germany when he was fairly young i think he was like 15 or 16 and the, the family story goes that his mother was concerned that he might end up in one of the European wars that was going on at the time. And so he was sent to America, um, and he ended up, I think, in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and I think Ohio. And he started working in a little store. So that's kind of one of the reasons why maybe when he moved out here eventually. But he made it to America just in time for the Civil War. So he actually ended up um, enlisting in the Union Army, and he fought at Antietam. And, I, and he fought at Gettysburg. He was injured in a different battle. I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head which, which battles. But he, I think, was injured in the leg. But then he was also shot in his shoulder. So when the war was over and young men were going west to seek their fortunes, the two big things were mining and railroads. And Herman couldn't mine and couldn't work on the railroad because of his shoulder. So he kind of went back to... Hey, I, you know, I used to, I know what a store, I, you know, I was, yeah. I, was, I was working in a store when I was younger. So, um, I, I think he followed the railroad and was, was doing other things for a little while. And then he realized, oh, I can sell goods to the workers or mm-hmm. the miners or whatever. And that's how he ended up in our area. He was following the Transcontinental Railroad. And once he got up here, he realized, oh, there's an opportunity here. So that's kind of how Herman made it out to our, our place. And then he bought, like I said, the store in 1876. In 1880, Lucy Walgamot came from Iowa. Her sister and brother-in-law actually ran the stage station out here. And they had been telling her to come visit and come out here and see the sights for herself. And I think another one of her sisters uh, and brother-in-laws were running another stage station also on the Keltern Road. But so Lucy thought, okay, I think she was kind of an adventurous soul. And so (laughs) she hopped on the stage and on the railroad and came out here. Uh, She left Kelton on the, the, the stage basically coming into this area in 1880. So she probably was one of the very few women that were kind of coming out here. And as far as I know, she was probably on her own. Yeah. So yeah, pretty brave. Jeez. Yeah. 
And the stage was late. I don't know if the stage was late itself or the train was late. Something was late. And by the time they got into our area, it was getting close to midnight. And Herman was still here waiting for the stage because he had money coming through. Uh-huh. So he was waiting for the post. Plus, he was the postmaster, so he was waiting for the mail. And so when, he, when Lucy arrived, um, she was helped off of the stage station by Herman Stricker. Yeah. And a couple of years later, they were married. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so it was kind of fun. Lucy came from Iowa, and she was very musical. When she had been living in Iowa, she had helped a guy that was selling pianos and organs. And he would talk about, you know, all the benefits of owning the musical instrument, and she would play so that people could see how easy it was, and they would sell these instruments. And so when she moved out here and settled, I guess he told her that he would ship her whatever at wholesale so she had him send her a piano first and then a few years later an organ came in and the piano is actually still in the Stricker family one of the great 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 granddaughters one of the greats (laughs) Um, actually has the piano has Lucy's piano yeah and it still gets played and then Lucy's organ we actually found out from an article from an interview somebody did with her in the 1940s but her organ was taken apart and dismantled and made into a bookcase. <laughs> so we don't know where that organ is, unfortunately, or that bookcase is either. Someone but, has a really cool bookcase. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the, um, an, the, the organ that was ordered at the same time as Lucy's um, ended up here because it was one of the Pioneer families in our area that donated it back to our site. So we have kind of the twin, basically. Yeah. The fun thing about Lucy was that she was pretty game for a lot of stuff. I mean, I guess if you're coming Uh out here on your own in 1880, you probably are. (laughs) But there were a lot of um, ranching, a lot of men in the area. There were cowboys and there there were a few farmers, but mostly, you know, ranching and things like that. When she got out here, they wanted her to play, basically. And so they would do things here on this little town side of Rock Creek. But then they would strap Lucy's piano on a wagon and they would go all over. So she'd go you know, visit them. And in fact, she went all the way to Haley, which would have involved taking a ferry across the Snake River after you'd gone down into the canyon and then back up. So the cowboys around here love Lucy because she was, you know, coming to play music for them. (laughs) So yeah, so it's kind of fun. So we have the organ. So that kind of represents, you know, the the first kind of generation of music is, you know, you got to play it yourself if you want to listen to it. Yeah. And then at some point, probably in the 1910s, 19-teens, they got a phonograph machine. And it's not one of the horned ones. It doesn't, you know, if you imagine the old Victrolas with those big horns, ours is one of the early hornless ones. So the sound came through like this little, I think, an S-shaped piece of wood that was in the cabinet. And so, yes, and we have replaced needles, but it still works. So the, the records are a little scratchy, but we like to play, you know, you crank it up. put the needle on and so it's kind of fun and um, we still play it for the fourth graders when they come through it's kind of fun there so you know that's kind of the second generation of okay now we don't have to necessarily make music but we can buy you know albums or you know records and put them on And then in the 1930s, uh, we have one of the the Stricker radio. So one of the granddaughters ended up with it, and a few years ago, uh, her family donated back to the site, and it's a Mm -hmm. Philco radio, and it actually still works too. We had a a local guy who kind of tinkers with radios. He fixed it for us. And so you plug it in, let it warm up, and now you've got the kind of the third generation of, Yeah. yeah. So it's actually really fun when the fourth graders come out. They're so used to music coming out of their phone or their tablet. And so they're really excited to kind of see, you know, the the, ra- the big radio with the knobs and the Victrola where the sound comes out in such a weird way, I guess. So, yeah. yeah. Right. Imagining them sitting around the fire, listening to a radio program, right. music, drama, different things going on. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I, I love that sort of yeah. thing. And being at a historic site that has music, you know, and mm-hmm. that ambiance, and you still have the ori- some of the original equipment that right. they were listening. That's so incredible. I it love that. It is fun. Yeah. yeah. 
Jobs. Is there anything else that kids seem to get the most out of or visitors in general are just so <laughs> impressed by? Well, I do think people come in and if they have only driven past the site a few times, it's kind of unassuming in some ways. Mm-hmm. You just see this little Victorian kind of farmhouse. And when you come in, you're like, oh, well, it's a little fancier than I thought it was. And mm-hmm. again, being out here in the, I don't want to say the middle of nowhere, but basically the middle of nowhere before you have, you know, you know, even, even the town of Twin Falls has been thought of. So, you know, yeah, having something on that scale out here was, is kind of interesting, but it's hard for some of the fourth graders when they come out and we get lots of fourth graders. I think we We'll see about 2,000 of them this year, which is kind of crazy. Um, but uh, when they come out, they, they have some interesting questions. One thing got fixed, darn it. So when they did the renovations a few years ago, they redid the plaster work in the, in the lower level, and they plastered over a crack. It wasn't a foundational crack in the ceiling, but it was just a crack of the plaster. Mm-hmm. And the kids loved that crack. Every time they'd come in the house, they'd point at it and... <laughs> So it's gone. So um, unfortunately, that's not a <laughs> you know a selling point anymore in the house, I guess. Um, but we have a number of what we call well-loved dolls. Oh. The kids call them scary dolls or creepy dolls. Yeah. So we get asked about that a lot. And it's amazing how quick the, the kids communicate when they're out. We split them up in different groups and take them around the whole site. And so if one group's in the house... I don't know if they're texting or if I don't know if there's like some other kind of, you know, communication that's going on or level, but the next group that comes in says, Oh, we have to see the creepy doll. We've been told there's a creepy doll. So they love it. Yeah. But we also have a couple of other interesting kind of things. We have some, when we think about our house, we, we go back to sort of, I want to say Lucy's lifetime. Um, the store is a little different cause it's older, but we figure if Lucy lived in this house and she would have, accessed it or had it it can stay in the house and lucy lived till she was 89 so that's a number of years so we get to go from you know the 1850s into the you know 1940s basically and so um we have things like a little stereoscope that lets you see kind of 3d pictures in a way and we have you know then we have you know of course we like the radio or the victrola or something like that we have lucy's original um, China. We have a place setting from her China. And so we get to kind of find some fun stuff. And we try to make sure that we've got something that's kind of interactive for the kids. We have Lucy's original, the trunk that she came out from Iowa with. Wow. Which is neat. And it has a lock on it. And unfortunately, we haven't ever opened it. So Why? one oh of these days. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, the the trunk itself has been opened. Sorry. The oh, lock... Okay. We can't, we don't have the key to it. The lock is still on there, but we can't, but it's, it's a pretty neat old lock with a Indian head emblem on the front, which is kind of really cool looking. Yeah. Yeah. And then we have Lucy's wedding furniture Mm -hmm. that um, was her bedroom furniture that, you know, survived the fire. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, we just have a a lot of number of, you know, a number of fun things that, that people haven't either either seen before, maybe, especially like in the summer kitchen, when we take the kids down and, and, you know, we say, we should show them some weird pieces of equipment that they've never seen before and that's kind of fun yeah that's so cool wow yeah you can really step back in time visiting this site yeah anyone interested in oregon trail history or just pioneer living Mm -hmm. like you really get that here the summer kitchen is such a fun little little area what what kind of things would they do in there what kind of food would they prepare when they were making the addition of the house in 1916 they were removed the original kitchen because now they were going to have a plumbed kitchen. You know, it's going to be electrified. It's going to be modern. Um, And so they had to have a place to cook things while they were building the new kitchen. So they built this little building out back and we call it the summer kitchen because eventually they used it even after they had the kitchen in the house, because in the summer when it's hot, you don't have to cook in the house. You can cook out in this little building, Um, anything that was stinky. So like, you know, if they were brining anything or making pickles or canning or fish, they could do it out in the summer kitchen and not, you know, the, the rest of the house was, you know, stayed fresh smelling, I guess uh-huh. you'd say. Yeah. So they could do that. But in the fall, they could do all their canning and preserving out there in that kitchen um, instead of having to do that in the house where it's more convenient to maybe do it all in one area where they could just cook meals and things like that in the house. They didn't have to worry about that. So, Yeah. And that poor building saw some use, and then it kind of had some rough years. And um, the original Friends of Stricker group, Friends of Stricker was founded in the um, 1980s, 
1983 and84 one of their goals was at some point to redo that kitchen and so they actually took it on as a project and completely refurbished it there's not a lot of original stricker stuff in that building but there's a lot of stuff that was donated from other families and then this is where uh, you know looking out at estate sales and people donating things kind of came in but it's been recreated basically to kind of let you see what it might have been like in the you know 1920s it's got some fun stuff. <laughs> What kind of volunteers do you have? And are you looking for more? And how can people sign up? (laughs) We are always looking for volunteers. So we always say, basically, whatever you're interested in, we can put you to use. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you like, you know, we have a couple of people who are interested in gardening that are on our board with our volunteers. And they love to take care of the flower beds and things like that. And then we have people who like to, um, you know, use their hands and work with wood and we can put them to use repairing things. And then we've got people who like the, you know, maybe the more uh, historical parts in terms of, you know, writing up information or working with our inventory and things like that. So basically if you have an interest we we can put you to use. We we kind of categorize our volunteers in three different ways. There's just sort of like like I said, if you have something that you want to do um, and you you know want to help out, we can kind of find you a project. Especially in May when we have our school tours, when we have uh, you know 18 to 20 schools that come out with their fourth graders to tour the site, which is really fun because you know these fourth graders don't realize sometimes that history is in their own backyard. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they don't, they don't see it sometimes, but they get it, you know, come, you know, four or five miles down the road and here you go. Um, So we see the fourth graders every year and we need volunteers for that too. It's really great. And it's kind of fun to come out here and answer the kids questions and see how excited they get about stuff. And then they like to show off their own, you know, their own knowledge because they've studied Oregon Trail and they've studied, you know, um, some of the pioneer stuff. So when you ask them questions, they like to say, oh, I know that. I know about the railroad. I know about the you know, all this other kind of fun stuff. So people to help us with the the school tours is also great. And we always say, you don't have to know anything about the site, really. We will provide all of the information you've ever wanted. Mm -hmm. And then we also have events and then our Sunday tours during the year. So we are open every Sunday for guided tours from about early April through about mid-October from 1 to 5. And we usually have a couple of us here to do tours that, those days. There are people who just like to come out here and hang out. You get to meet such a wide range of people on Sundays. Sometimes it's, you know, somebody local that's driven past the place a million times but never been out here. And sometimes it's, you know, somebody that is following Oregon Trail and they've made their way up here. Or somebody's just, you know, kind of on a Sunday drive and they just happen to be passing through. So yeah. you get to learn not just about the site on your own, but you also get to kind of share that with everybody. And that's really fun. And then we have our events too. So some of our events we have, well, we, we used to do a really big Mother's Day event, but the school tours have sort of taken over May. (laughs) And so it's hard on our volunteers to do school tours and then do a big Mother's Day event. So we've kind of done a low key Mother's Day event. um, And that's going to be on the Saturday, right before Mother's Day this year. And um, that's basically just kind of having the house open and letting people come in. We usually serve Lucy's ginger snaps. There's a recipe that we have of her ginger snaps. She used to welcome people here with her ginger snaps and her lemonade. So we kind of reenact that a little bit. Um, And then we have uh, um, a couple of big events coming up later this year. One is our Spaghetti Western, which is kind of fun. We we call it a cross between The Amazing Race and Clue. And it's a fundraiser for us. Um, People will, will pay for a ticket to come out and... We send them running around the site solving puzzles and they figure out the mystery that we've got set that night and we give them a good spaghetti dinner and yeah, it's, yeah, it is, it's kind of fun and it's usually on a beautiful summer evening Mm -hmm. and we have a nice big table down on the lower lawn in the beautiful shade and we get a lot of people out here for that event. (laughs) So, and then finally in October, we usually do our after dark event and we haven't done it for a few years because we've been busy kind of recouping from everything else that's been going on but um we're gonna really try this year to have our after dark event and that's kind of when we play up the whole spookiness yeah yeah maybe not necessarily the whole paranormal but we like to tell stories and we try to keep it if not completely historically accurate historically adjacent okay yeah (laughs) um sometimes we tell stories but we try to we try to 
do it in a historical way. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we'll talk about who's buried out in the cemetery or we'll talk about other things, but we have a different theme every year. And um, because we do it in the house and we, we turn all the lights off and just have um, the little LED candles and we try to have some jump scares and some other kinds of fun stuff. We get a lot of people that come out because they want to see what we're doing every year. So that one's kind of a fun event. And we always need volunteers to help. I mean, actually, it's more fun to scare people than it is to be scared. I am <laughs> <laughs> with you there. That's my favorite, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, folks, you heard it. Come out to Stricker. It's so it's so fascinating. Is not far from the the highway so if Mm -mm. you're if you're doing a tour through idaho you'll see right on the highway stricker historic site rock creek station just take it and follow the route out to this site it's it's a really interesting step into time and if you live in the area if you're a student you're looking for an internship or a project this is a fantastic place to come and learn and maybe work on a project or come and volunteer and get your foot in the door working in history. So, so many cool things going on this summer and I'm looking forward to to working with you over the next projects on the horizon. How can people reach out to you? What's what's the best way to contact you? Um, Well, if you're on social media, uh, we have a Facebook page. So uh, just friends of Stricker, facebook.com slash friends of Stricker. Um, We also have a website, although... (laughs) I do have to say that it is in progress. We had a change in, in, in hosts basically. And we unfortunately lost some stuff that we had from the original site. So we're still trying to make that up, but there's that. And we also have our email, which is friends of Stricker at gmail.com. So perfect. Those are all linked in this episode. So if you're interested, please check that out. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much <laughs> for being on the show. We kind of have this tradition. If I were to say, do your own time, how would you respond to that? So for me, I think that means, you know, find something that you're interested in and put your time into it and have, you know, yeah, make it yours, basically. That's great. Make it yours. (laughs) I love that. Do your own time. Make it yours. I like that a lot. (laughs) All right, everybody. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. It's been great. Do your own time. Do your own number. We'll talk to you again soon. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.